0: This is the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Leia Merovich.
1: Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. I'm Leia Merovich, Senior News Reporter at Rappaport. On this episode, I was joined by David Marcotte, who's been the Senior Vice President of Global Insights and Technology for retail advisory company Kantar Consulting for the last 15 years. We discussed current trends in the retail industry in general, and with jewelry specifically, why inflation is an inflated excuse for a company's disappointing results, where consumer dollars are really going, and what to expect for the holiday season this year. Enjoy the episode. So welcome, Dave Marcotte from Cantar Consulting. It's a pleasure to have you here. Can you tell me a little bit about your background? How did you get into the industry and... What is your experience?
0: So my family's been in retail for a couple of generations. My grandfather had a restaurant and also ran a business on the side. My father had a pharmacy in a small town, so we were involved with everybody else, including every other form of retail. I went to school, came out without being able to find a job, and went back into retail. So I spent 20 years in retail in Canada and the United States. Went through night school, was one of the first people to learn how to work on a PC, which opened doors and I wound up in IBM for about 10 years. And then after that, I came to this company about 15 years ago as their global retail lead.
1: Great. And do you want to give me a little bit of an idea of what Kantar does?
0: Sure. Kantar Retail is a foremost consultative and syndicated data and insight company related to anything that touches retail. So that not only includes retail stores or online retail, but it also includes logistics, finance, government regulations, whatnot. So we look at the whole of retail. In our database, we have over 1,400 retailers around the world. Uh, we track that going back about 10 years, and we also forecast those sales going out five years. So it is a very comprehensive shop in regards to managing and meeting the needs of our clients in regards to anything to do with the retail.
1: What it sounds like you're saying is that clients come to you looking for ideas about what trends are going on or how to fix certain problems in their business, how to improve their business, things like that.
0: I mean, it very you know on a study basis it is what's going on. Where are sales going? Where are they not going? Where are shoppers going? A portion of our company is dedicated to shopper research, and in that process, we're able to come back to clients and say, "This is what we see happening in the industry. This is what we see happening in this channel," and that's true for most of the countries in the world. It's just a question of you know, what they're looking for and such. The other side of it, which is something I deal with a little bit more, is whatever is more current in requirements. So, for example, the beginning of the pandemic, not only was I talking about the impact of the pandemic, shop behaviors, changes in that, but I was also looking at retail finance. Retail finance, you know, exploded into all types of different directions during the beginning there. And then as, you know, the pandemic became more normalized, then the area I spent a lot more time on was inventory you know, where's the inventory, where's it going, where it's not going, That like gets supply chain, you know, why is it not flowing across the Pacific? Why is it not coming from Europe? A lot of what I do has something to do with the current demands of clients that are out of the ordinary. Most recently, I've been dealing with organized retail crime, you know, what are the directions, what's happening? And we just recently did a paper on that for Europe, the United States and Latin America.
1: Interesting. So you're basically the crystal ball for the industry,
0: huh? Yeah, I'm kind of well, you know, for the, the bad news is I'm old. The better news being I have a lot of experience across all parts of the industry. So I have not only an operational basis and a financial one, but I also have an IT one. So I understand how retail works in a variety of different ways. And I try to pull that together and... You know, provide that type of service to our clients in context to Cantar. I advise also internal to the company for the same purposes and such. So it's an interesting job, to say the least.
1: It sounds interesting. And actually, what you were just saying about organized crime sounds interesting too. You said that's been a, a recent trend that you're talking about. Are you seeing a lot more of an increase in organized crime than there was in the past?
0: There's definitely an uptick in terms of interest. There's been an uptick in terms of activity. That said. What I'm seeing repeatedly is the same I would have seen, say, 20 or 40 years ago. This seems to run in 20-year cycles during which, you know, a certain class of either minor or mid-range criminal get to the realization that, you know, there's money to be made and they go and, until eventually local law enforcement comes up with a way of slowing it down and making it more difficult. So we're currently in that phase right now where we've seen, you know, an upsurge in terms of crime inside of retail Organized sometimes is a kind of a aspirational statement, but at the end of the day, you know, eventually law, law enforcement comes around and starts surrendering it. Probably the more accurate statement I would have is that people presume this is a retail-only responsibility. The retailer is responsible for stopping crime. That's almost impossible in the organized retail crime. You know, it has to be the surrounding community, the surrounding government. Everybody has to be involved. The other problem you have at the moment is that so many people are new to the retail trades and so many people either left or retired out of it in the last three years. So you don't have the experience on the floor of people dealing with contentious situations, situations where they have to step in and try to prevent you know, a crime from occurring before it occurs, which is really the best time to do it. So it's ai wouldn't say it's quite a hot topic. It's definitely one that comes up repeatedly in terms of how retailers are speaking to their core results. So it becomes more of an issue for everybody else.
1: Yeah, of course, I'm assuming because it affects every retailer alike at some point. I know that recently, the jeweler Security Alliance actually just put out a warning that crime is up, organized crime and robbery is particularly in California. Have you noticed anything like that? And do you think jewelry is suffering more than other retailers?
0: I mean, there's several ways of looking at it. California gets a lot of attention because the media here is politically diverse. And one side of the media covers it versus another. I think this is true in every country I look at. There's one side that, you know, basically there's a law and order side and then another side, which is, I think, more practical. You know, what do we do to live with it? When you're looking at jewelry and you're looking at the jewelry trade, you're looking at something different, something that's been ongoing for a long time in regards to the amount of energy criminals will put into to getting product, especially since it's relatively you know, dense in terms of value and easy to transport. So unlike other forms of retail, when you're looking at the jewelry trade, you're overwhelmingly looking at a smash and grab type of technique. Drive a car through the front window, you know, bring in four or five people, smash all the cases, be extremely threatening and such. That type of behavior, which, by the way, has a very negative outcome if you get caught, is worth doing in jewelry because the payoff is so good. You won't do this in a grocery store. It doesn't make any sense. You know, you have a whole different way of stealing in there. But jewelry trade has always had to contend with this. There was a group called the Pink Panthers out of Eastern Europe and very well might still be a group called the Pink Panthers. And I suspect you're familiar with them. They've been around for 20 years. And um, steadily, they have gone around the world and they've hit a lot of trade. In the US, what you've seen, and actually in the UK, we've seen more as what we call tourist criminals, i.e. they basically come in as tourists, they spend a month, and in that month, they steal as much as they can, they fence off whatever they're going to do, and they electronically transfer the funds back to the country. It's a new form of crime. Unfortunately, in jewelry, it's not quite as new as in other forms. The other thing we see in terms of jewelry trade that's interesting to me is the same people that do smash and grabs into stores often as not as doing high-end residential break-ins. It seems to be the same skill set, if you wish. And so that's been on the uptick in a lot of places as well.
1: Okay, so when you say high-end residential break-ins, you're talking about they're going to wealthy people's houses and taking their jewelry from there.
0: Yeah, that's definitely an uptick. What we... It's interesting. I worked with people in the UK to do this study. And what's very obvious is whereas the media covers this very intensely in in terms of the United States, this is a global phenomenon. It just depends upon how much attention and how much it's recorded going out past the industry and into the media in terms of where the information is.
1: I actually did a story on this a couple of years ago for our magazine. And I definitely have heard of the Pink Panthers. And I know they operate primarily out of Romania, is what I found. And I actually spoke to different security agencies throughout the world Germany and the UK, the US, Israel. And it seems like they're most pursued in the US more than in other markets, primarily because. In other markets, the laws are so stringent of what you have to prove, how you can pursue them, what you can do, that it makes it much more difficult than it does in the U.S. to actually catch them and prosecute them. Have you seen that?
0: If you want a funny um, reference to that, one of the first James Bonds books I ever read was Goldfinger. And towards the end of it, they've captured the criminal and they say, you know, your misfortune here is you got caught in the US. In the US, they take murder seriously, but they take property crime much more serious. So in the US, you're gonna get punished much worse than you would in the UK. There's a lot of truth to that. Property crime in the United States has a higher, I'm not sure what term I would wanna use, but a higher awareness and a higher response rate in terms of law. And it's kind of a hard way to explain it, but you're completely correct. In the US, property crime takes higher precedence in many ways. And there's a whole discussion (laughs) into why that's true. But that does show up in terms of the amount of energy. I have noticed the same thing in regards to the EU. You would expect there to be a much more coordinated response to an international group like this. There is evidence that there is subsets of this that operate in Asia. And you don't hear very much about that either.
1: That's interesting. Have you researched at all any tips for jewelers, any way to help them prevent things like this from happening?
0: Let me back up here. Let me make sure we understand. Everything about retail is about opening up a space to shoppers. If you don't have shoppers in the store, then you don't have retail. As simple as it gets. So everything about loss prevention is how do I manage the shopper experience at the same time creating friction and hardened points such that, you know, they can't steal from me. In the jewelry trade, this has meant armored casing and taking only one thing out at a time and training your people carefully to look for signs, having automatic locks in the front, having hardened and, you know, shatterproof windows, et cetera, et cetera. It's an arms race, you know, for better or for worse. If I completely armor the entire store, then I have no business people aren't gonna shop with me. So I have to find that you know that medium where it is. Even if I create the store as a single hard point, then they'll basically steal a trash car, a trash truck or a large vehicle and just smash it through the front window. So at which point you're getting into, is it more expensive for them to come in the store and steal from me or is it more expensive for them to destroy my store? There's bad choices. The real answer here, which you know, is difficult because it involves more complexity, is frankly, is to make sure that the community is sufficiently policed, that you have adequate law enforcement to make sure that something is surrounding it to make it more difficult to happen. If that doesn't happen, then, you know, you have stealing. Again, labor is overwhelmingly an issue here in that, you know, you have new retail employees, but you also have new law enforcement. Most law enforcement organizations globally, but particularly in the U.S., are understaffed. So where they're going to focus their efforts and how they're going to do it becomes part of that. There's no simple answers. It's really, in my own experience, it's something that time seems to manage better than and just doing forceful, organized actions. You know, as time goes on, you simply make it harder and harder for them not only to steal, but most importantly, to fence. If they can't fence, they're not going to steal it. And that right now is where I think a lot of the efforts are going, is to make sure that they can't monetize their theft.
1: It sounds interesting. I mean, it, it's very hard. I know a lot of jewelers struggle a lot with trying to figure out how to protect their stores. So that's actually... Helpful and hopefully will work in the long run. Let's take it to a little bit of a different field now. In general, how do you see the retail market as a whole right now, the economic factor, the inflation and everything like that?
0: I think it's going to be 10 years before we figured out what happened in 2020 and 2021. The disruption of the pandemic on a global basis is simply an unknown factor in modern times. We still have not internalized all the things that happened there. So what you've seen is... Yeah, you know, the major change of 2020 with lockdowns and everything else, but with large parts of retail just exploding in behind that. People didn't have enough time to do other things, so they did recreational shopping. They had more income than expected because they weren't spending it on travel and other type of luxuries. So they spent it on luxury goods. And the jewelry trade in 2020 and 2021 had tremendous years, abnormally good years. And we saw that. 2022, there's You know, There was kind of a return back to normal, but again, it did not go as anybody expected it to go. There still was a heightened performance in terms of retail across almost all classes of trade with apparel finally picking up as lockdown stopped. So that background is still with us. We just don't know how to absorb it and say, okay, going forward, what type of changes do we really want to be able to forecast on? I think some of the ones we need to come to terms with is... Uh, first and foremost, there's, the commercial real estate market is severely depressed in most markets because people are not opening and building new stores. They're still not remodeling stores. As I would I would have predicted in this year, I would expect to see a lot more remodels. What's really about is still there's an unease in the retail business. So they're keeping back cash in the form of free cash or other types of transferable so they can change directions if need be. But the other you know, element of that is their basic business model was distorted, but it was highly profitable. So what am I going to do now? You know, what am I going to do going forward? In many markets, you have the emergence of what's called retail media. And retail media essentially is, on the retail side, is investing into technology to absorb more and more shoppers into a close relationship such that they're able to gain a higher density of data in turn be able to take that body of data and be able to you know sell access to it or provide promotional access to the shopper and charge a fee for that retailers when they can do this can make up to you know successfully can make up to 2 to 3% of their operating margin that's great but it's not translating into new stores and it also the threshold for entering into that type of income is high it takes a lot of time and effort to get there so Overall, in retail trade as a whole, there's still a major amount of disruption. They're still you know, trying to figure out not just what normal is, because I, I, I haven't heard anybody say we're back to the new normal in over a year and a half. That uh, I think everybody, for all the right reasons, thinks that's a stupid thing to say. But they are trying to figure out, how do I go forward and stay a viable business in the new sets of rules that I'm dealing with? That's a little harder. Um, that's where we're going at the moment.
1: So do you think then, based on what you're saying, that inflation is the major factor in the depression of retail sales now? Or do you think that it's more because it's skewed so far one way during COVID, that it didn't just bounce back to what it was pre-COVID, but went all the way back the other way, like as if it's a pendulum swinging? And if so, when do you think it's going to get back to, I don't want to say normal, as you said, but maybe back to, you know, sort of on track with where it was pre-COVID when it was just, you know, sales were gradually increasing or decreasing and ebbing and flowing as normal?
0: I have a very counter... Intuitive story to inflation, which is it's a tremendous media story, but it doesn't seem to be impacting shopper behavior very much. If you ask shoppers, are you concerned about inflation? They say yes. Are you concerned about your budget? You say yes. Then you watch what they do. It doesn't look like anything to do with they're concerned about inflation. You know, they go off and they drop half their income into a you know a trip they haven't had in three years. So I think in retail we need to step away from the inflation is the problem. To simply, the majority of the history, <laughs> my history was with inflation over five, six, seven percent. So the real problem in retail at the moment is that they got used to being in a situation where they really didn't have to work very hard to make money. They simply opened the doors, people showed up, and they spent whatever. The people had no price sensitivity. I think now it's a very different environment. They have to compete now. With each other, that's still not really going on yet, which I find kind of strange. Also, they're really competing for the wallet share, and that wallet share is less impacted by inflation. Their choices, you know, am I going to spend it on, you know, travel? Am I going to spend it on family? Am I going to spend it on education? You know, a lot of people didn't spend any money on education for two years, so you have the, all these competing factors that you have to deal with, but and i would say but is every ceo feels very comfortable in their quarterly reports to say well, our results are poor because of inflation well no it's not that you know if you go underneath the covers that's not what i'm saying when you look at overall inflation it still continues to be mostly in food and that's the area where you know you're seeing a lot of inflation still and that impacts lower incomes far more than middle income or higher income obviously That factor one is changing some of the shapes of decision making. So do I go to the supermarket and buy food or do I go to a restaurant? You know, the off there is a little easier to understand if the prices in the grocery is higher versus what I'm going to do there. Apparel and general merchandise and other things actually are significantly down regardless of inflation. So those prices are down, and that's not really impacting stuff. You hit kind of a sore point with me because I every time I read, you know, comments from a retailer saying our results were bad because of inflation, I have an automatic reaction, which is to go into their P and L and find out that inflation had very little to do with their results. It's almost always, you know, the shopper changed behaviors or. They simply did something different, but it very, very rarely has something to do with inflation in the context they're speaking to.
1: So this is actually the first time that I'm ever hearing somebody say that because, yeah, you're right, I see the National Retail Federation and all the different retailers and the jewelers that we cover are always saying, you know, it's been tough because of inflation, sales are down because of inflation, and this and that. It's used as a consistent reason, but what it sounds like you're saying is that inflation really isn't having much of an impact and that people are still spending... They're just spending in different areas than they were before. And from my own personal experience, I'll tell you, my grocery bill has increased quite a bit. So I see where you're coming from. So the money is going to different places, but it's still going, correct?
0: Right. You know, years ago, I started studying the Japanese market and I discovered that every single quarter, all the retailers missed their numbers because it was a rainy spring. They all had problems with rain, which... If you give it any thought whatsoever is incredibly dumb, but that was their excuse and nobody would ask about it and such. My first car loan was at 18% interest and that was back in 1980. I still bought a new car. I think we've spent over 10 years with 2%, 3 4% inflation and we've forgotten that it can be the normal you can have five, six, seven percent inflation; it's normal. Just yes, people's behaviors change, their choices change, and such. But you know, they're simply using it as a blunt tool to explain results. No, I, I simply don't buy into that. The other way of looking at this is, uh, you know, I, the twenty years I was in retail it was almost all during periods of high inflation, and not once did I hear anybody ever say that we had poor results in terms of inflation. We had poor results in terms of operations. We had poor results because competition outmaneuvered. We had poor results. Because shoppers changed, but we didn't have poor results in terms of inflation. It's just simply one more reality you have to work within.
1: Well, the interesting thing is that if it was inflation, inflation affects poorer people more than it does the wealthy. So the question is then... Are we seeing that sales are different across the board, no matter where, like, if we're going by the U.S., no matter what area of the U.S., are are they all the same? Are we still seeing the same demand in luxury sales, or are those funds also diverted to other things?
0: I would say the results that you're seeing in, you know, food, drug, and mass is fairly consistent. Keeping in mind that chain drug was severely depressed during the pandemic. They're starting to, you know, having run. When you're looking at products and how products are selling right now, something you have to add into that discussion is what I refer to as purchase cycles. So everybody bought home goods two years ago and up to about a year ago. So like refrigerators, stoves and whatnot. Those are huge purchases and they carried that trade. But those are purchases you only make to every 10, 15, 20 years. So once people buy it, they're out of the market. Jewelry is kind of in that space, in that the major purchase, be it you know for engagement or recognition of events or promotion, there was a definite uptick of that in you know in, in 2022 as people came out of the pandemic and they started participating in family events and various you know moments. If you wish that it disappeared, well, now we're a year on, and I think we seriously have to look back and go first and foremost how much of the trade has purchased that item and is not going to come back in my door for another purchase for another 10 or 15 years. Generally speaking, people only get engaged once. They only get married once. You know, this is kind of positive thinking on my part, but occasions and the purchasing of jewelry for occasions is something much more fluid and much more manageable by the industry as a whole. And what I haven't seen from the industry overall, or particular chain's as well done as could be, is how do I create new occasions? How do I create that new surge into business that I can, you know, I can replicate and keep going into new things? Again, I'm still in the discovery phase of what my new business model is because of all the distortions. And I think that's what's happening at the moment, you know, in most cases. The other thing we're seeing in the jewelry trade is what we're seeing in several other channels is consolidation. You're seeing increasingly, you know, smaller companies being bought by large ones, online companies are being absorbed into major store chains and such. It's an international phenomenon. As, you know, first and foremost, they still have an awful lot of cash left over from the last three years. So they have the money to spend on it. But you know, some of the more quick upstart venture capital type companies are now running into the reality that money costs money. And they have to re change their entire, you know, business model to that. And it becomes a choice of do I continue to lose money as a business or do I make money by selling myself to a larger player? Increasingly that answer is I sell myself to a bigger player. And that's the pattern we're seeing right now. Again, I don't expect to see that after two more years, because essentially most of the consolidation will you know have happened as it's going to we'll have to see, but I think most of what the industry is experienced right now is the same distortions of every other channel, which is people did not behave at all in the least like they have in the last forty years and We're still coming to terms with that.
1: Well, it's true. Actually, we have seen a lot of, you know, consolidation acquisitions and purchases in the market lately. And actually, the Jewelers Board of Trade recently released data that said a lot of stores in the U.S. were closing due to consolidations and mergers, which is actually an interesting factor. Do you think that that makes it more difficult for the retail industry because there are bigger companies that are controlling and, and less diversity available
0: i think in the jewelry trade you there's always been a certain dynamic of very large chains and independence and in terms of mass design and production versus independent you know, craftsmen and such i don't think that dynamic has gone away but if you're an independent it has become more difficult to have a predictable cash flow and that is making things uneven on the chain side you have a similar difficulty that if you're a smaller company their resources are less also. Everybody has to contend with the fact that almost every government in the world lowered the cost of cash almost down to zero during the pandemic to keep things afloat. Well, money costs money now. That's you know, the best way I can put it. So everybody gets impacted, but the larger companies are able to navigate that far better with more tools than the smaller ones. That's where it's going. I'm kind of curious to see where the independent side of this goes next, because they invariably have to carve out a niche or carve out a different clientele than the chain stuff.
1: So something you said before, actually, I find interesting. You were talking about holidays and relying on all the usual holidays, like I assume you mean Valentine's, Christmas, Mother's Day, when you would generally be purchasing Is what you're saying that you think that stores doing the traditional, retailers doing the traditional thing that they've been doing all these years that seem to work for them in the past is no longer working for them and that they need to find other ways of getting people to buy and not rely on having a big promotion on one of the known holidays?
0: I think what you're seeing, first and foremost, let me say I agree with you. I think there's a little bit of frustration as to I have a traditional holiday list and it's not responding the way I want it to. And again... People are still sorting their way through as to what holidays mean to them in particular. Valentine's Day is just classic of it. In some countries, Valentine's Day has exploded. Uh, Mexico is a good example of that, you know, where we've seen Valentine's Day come out of nowhere. In the US, it's kind of maybe become kind of like another background noise. And that's frustrating in terms of that. You saw for the last 10, 15 years, most of the innovation in terms of holidays was coming out of China. Where they were doing number holidays, so they would have you know eight 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 you know sales or one 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 sales or whatever, those type of number holidays, which were let's be honest, artificial holidays based on numerology, if it was, they were a tremendous uptick and they were able to use those to generate new sales, except for. Now we're past that, you know, there's that innovation is now drifting away. I think the other place that the jewelry trade should be looking at at the moment is that the level of immigration in the world has never been higher. And that's important to note in that as you see populations moving back and forth into Europe, the United States, Canada, especially Canada at the moment, Mexico and whatnot, you're seeing a very different group of people in regards to how they regard jewelry and how they regard the value associated to jewelry. So the largest group coming into the United States and overwhelmingly coming into Canada is Indians. And they're coming in from India with a perspective towards jewelry that has more of a family orientation, a way of you know, storing wealth, a way of showing wealth that's very different than the current population has. You're seeing you know, Filipinos, Chinese, you're seeing you know, Central Americans, you're seeing a whole host of new groups come into different countries. For example, if I'm in the European market, I'm seeing a lot of you know, North Africans come in. Again, different attitude, different approach, different value when it comes to jewelry that I think is still not being absorbed into the main trade they're still allowing that to be really the niche or the independent trade that addresses itself to those groups i think that's probably the next opportunity we have
1: so how do you propose that people that retailers can open themselves up to gaining this market what is it they could do i mean do they have you know sale on indian style jewelry or you don't want to segment the population and say okay, well, we're going to have a sale geared towards Indians that are now in the U.S. because then you're leaving out everybody else. How do you capture that market without fragmenting it and separating out the other people that aren't in that particular niche?
0: That's absolutely the problem every retailer's always had. How do I address a new population without alienating the old one? And I always have the same answer as too bad. Welcome to retail. You have to adjust and you have to understand it. It's funny. Somebody asked her, I said, how do I know if I have Indians in my market? I said, well, it's pretty simple. Look at your movie theaters and see what they're playing on the weekends in terms of movies. And if you don't recognize the name of the movie, maybe you should look into it. Invariably, they're Tamil or Hindi language films, but they're out of sight. You don't realize how pervasive it is. The other side of it is increasingly in most countries, you're starting to see holidays like Diwali show up in terms of the retail calendar. Obviously, that was not seen until 10 years ago. It was about 20 years ago, you started seeing Chinese New Year coming up or the Vietnamese moon holidays and such. You can see in other areas where you see the population getting to the size, first and foremost, where you know, they need to be marketed to. You can come to it late. There's no shame in that. But the other side, which I feel very strongly about, is how much of the new population coming into the country changes the country they're coming into. And that's very important also. You know, invariably, many of the holidays, many of the rides, many of the foods and whatnot start getting absorbed by the general population. It may not look at all like the original holiday, but they're important ones to grab a hold of because they become part of that importance. In the United States, we saw this years ago when Halloween, which is a big, big suburban holiday, started absorbing elements of the Mexican Day of the Dead. And you start seeing that change the approach to that holiday and such. You've seen, again, the middle of January now, Chinese New Year is quite common in many countries in terms of as a retail holiday. So how we adjust to that, I think, is part of that challenge. But, you know, it's not a new challenge. It's just another one we need to you know, start doing a better job of recognizing and reacting to. Frankly, I think the old holidays have lost their energy for the next couple of years until we get back to a different type of population of shoppers in terms of how they're approaching things.
1: So this is actually fascinating to me what you're saying because I agree with you completely and I have seen those changes like the Day of the Dead and all of that. I've seen all those different things taking place. So I get where you're coming from. But then on the opposite hand, we've seen and heard constantly, especially in the jewelry industry, that jewelry is such an emotional purchase and that when you have customers, you need to stick with those customers and make sure you're always servicing your target audience and those customers that you've had for so long. And, you know, so it seems like very conflicting that you need to sort of move on because your sales are not going to wait for you if you don't catch up with what's going on. But at the same point, you don't want to lose all of the people who've been with you all this time because they still will at some point come back for further purchases. If they need a birthday gift or if they need an anniversary gift or whatever, you're their jeweler of choice. You don't want to lose those sales either. Is there a way to sort of play to the new people that are in your market and also retain the customers that you have at the same time without a sort of, you know, well, let's just move on to the next big thing because you're going to have to keeping up with everything that's going on. And, you know, you want to sort of have your mainstay market back there waiting for you to kind of pillow you while you're trying to keep up with everything new that's going on.
0: Yeah, there is no reward to revolutionary thinking and merchandising. People need to be aware of that slow and validation is better than suddenly changing and trying to do things. My longest and most engaging period of time in the jewelry trade was with Tiffany's many years ago. And there, it was funny in conversations with them, they were saying, well, we need to find a different customer than the five fives. And I go, what's a five five? said, "Well, that's a fifth avenue. That's a fifth avenue customer. That's five generations back in terms of how they've had us. And I said, okay, well, how's that working? It says, well, the first problem is they're not having large families anymore. So that's a big one. The second one, which is bigger is that they don't want jewelry. They want simple things. They want things that are more abstract. They want stuff like that. So they started putting out an entire line of silver jewelry. They started putting out an entire line of simpler formats and whatnot. But they didn't take everything else out of the case. Let's you know be clear here. They still were doing that type of thing. They also were coming to the realization that Fifth Avenue was not going to drive the same amount of trade going forward as it had in the past. And that became, you know, how do we internationally do I do this? It was not An overnight change. One of the things you saw, Tiffany, start to do a much better job of repeatedly was getting themselves into movies. And I can't overstate how important it is for a special retailer to get themselves into movies because when the residual of that is massive, but there are many countries, particularly China and India, where if they see something in a movie, the desire to see it in person is extraordinarily strong. So the most unusual part of this is there was a Chinese film called Finding Mr. Right. And uh, it was filmed in Seattle in a small suburban home. and Nothing special about the house, trust me. There's absolutely nothing about it. The movie came out. It was a hit. And since that day onward, there's about a thousand visitors to that house every single bloody day. The impact of being in a movie, the impact of being, it's not simply being in commercials, it's being, can you show myself in the normal rhythm of people's lives? And that starts becoming a bigger part of the picture in terms of that. When we're looking at immigration and we're looking at the movement of populations across the world, we're seeing the same type of need for being able to communicate to the population that. This is the new. This is the new way of looking at how things happen, and that changes things. That that makes it very, very different. Um, and it's quite natural the way it occurs. It's just that retail invariably is always struggling with what percentage do I dedicate to this? How do I position that? Do I show or do I not show? And again, this is a trade. Always, always going back to the beginning of time, where the independent does better than the chain because the independent can respond to it now. The other way of looking at this, you said, well, how am I going to keep my current trade and keep it for longer? I always say the same thing, which is you do realize they will eventually disappear. They will eventually move on. If you cannot revive your trade, if you cannot bring new blood into your trade in a predictable manner, then having, you know, old and existing customers is eventually going to come back and punish you. So how you do that is also part of that decision-making.
1: Interesting. So tell me, what trends are you seeing the most now in retail? What's the big thing that's happening?
0: I think the first, it's interesting. I look on a regular basis as to where spending is going for capital expenditures. So I would have predicted this year that the majority of money would start going back into new stores and remodels, because it's been five years and most stores are not aging very well at the moment. But overwhelmingly, most of the money that's getting spent back into retail is being spent on information technology and cyber warfare or cybersecurity. I often tell people, if you want to understand the return investment on cybersecurity, it's very simple. If you have one mistake, you lose one quarter worth of net margin. That's your return investment. So most retailers have been upping that game considerably because there's more than enough stories in the industry regarding what happens when things go bad but at the same time if i'm going to do more in terms of in-store online in-store digital retail media i need to invest into technology at the same time i also have a significant investment in terms of labor labor is first needs to be trained but it's also more expensive than it was before i told a client the other day i said when was the last time you heard about a strike where the union lost well, that hasn't happened in two years. Labor has never been stronger than it has been in the last 20, 25 years here. So you're seeing money go that direction. And you're seeing, again, the next thing in retail being, how can I engage the shopper beyond the store? How can I bring them into a better relationship? How can I br- bring them into more um, trusting relationships so they're willing to work with me, share me data and whatnot? That's a challenge and that's hard to do. I still have the difficulty in that the stores are not aging well. And remodels are starting to happen, but they're still not happening at the pace I would expect to see in any market. And I include, you know, every market I look at at the moment, there's not remodels occurring the way they should in a normal cycle of time.
1: So do you think that the remodel is as important as investment in cybersecurity? Like if somebody only has money to put into one versus the other... Isn't cybersecurity the more important because they can lose a lot more of their business, even if their store is still a little old-fashioned or not as tech-savvy as it should be?
0: And you just expressed the equation that everybody's dealing with. I know I have to do something about the store. I know I need to do something about digital technology with our shoppers. I know I have to train labor. I know there's so many other costs that I didn't have three or four years ago, but at the same time... It's very easy for you me to look around and see what happens when things go bad Up in Canada a chain called Sobeys was hit by um, you know a hacking attack and literally they lost half of one quarter of net margin in what was essentially three or four days of having their pharmacy taken offline the impact is huge and we've seen this repeatedly in terms of where you see that if that failure goes as far as the shopper then it gets even worse there was a chain down in Chile where, hackers got into it, and every receipt that came out of the point of sales said, congratulations, I now have all your credit card information. You know, that tends to put a lot of pressure on the retailers to settle or do something. And that's reality, it's not going away. So when we look at the trade-off, I think the real key to the trade-off is when you start seeing a much more intense competitive environment between stores that we haven't seen for the last 4 years. If you think about 2020, you went to a store and you spent money if it was open. You didn't care what it was. You just bought it. In 2021, you went and you bought whatever they had because they were having inventory issues. So you grabbed that. In 2022, you started seeing prices going up. You started seeing labor being an issue. You still bought things. Now we're in that period where shoppers are starting to adjust and look for a better quality consumer or shopper experience. That doesn't mean Fancy stores. It means really, you know, do you have the stuff in stock? Is it clean? Is it neat? Have you remodeled? Remodels to me are more important than new stores because remodels cost about, say, ten percent of what a new store does, but it usually generates, you know, the same type of income in the first year as a new store does, and that's the importance of that. And that's a lesson we learned ten, fifteen years ago: is investing overwhelmingly into new stores doesn't have the return that you would hope it would. Remodels does. So you know, if I'm running a company, I have choices. None of them are really good choices at the moment, but I got to make some of them. And I said, okay, next year I'll remodel. Or in the case of some companies I remodeled three, four years ago, I can get another four or five years out of that. That's reality. I can't overemphasize enough the role of labor in this picture because I've asked repeatedly senior people in retail, "said how did you get this job And I said, well, you know, I went to school to do this and I did that and I needed the money. So I joined a company and I needed, you know, I had a family. And the next thing you know, I'm a chief executive officer at a retail company. And I said, so you didn't go into retail? I said, no, this was an accident. Another way of putting it is retail is almost everybody's second choice. And if you're in retail, you know why it should be second choice. It's a hard business. That's where we're at at the moment is a lot of people that have come into retail recently are starting to learn it, starting to learn that you can make a living out of it. You can put your kids to school, whatever you need to do. That's all good, but there's at the beginning of their career. So the cost of labor and the cost of labor to make it better and fit and to retain it is to me a bigger issue than almost anything else, whether people talk about it or not. I think one of the funny comments I've heard more than once is chief executive officer saying, I never thought I would care more about employees than shoppers. That's an interesting moment. I can always find shoppers. I can't find employees. So the equation has changed and the costs have changed. Uh, where it goes, I don't know. I would say that you know this is a place where when you have more people die and you have less people being born, you know, if you don't have immigration, you're going to have issues. You got to bring more people into the market to make it happen. So the tensions are all over that picture. And they're going to continue as we go forward.
1: So that's like a really hard call because when I'm listening to you, my initial thought is, wow, that's crazy, the incident in Chile with the receipts and everything like that. You know, I would think that that would be where the money needs to go most to be invested. But then I also understand when you're talking about the remodeling and the competition and the fact that, you know, shoppers are important, but having somebody to service them and somebody who can service them well is also important. And it leaves me wondering, what can people do? Is there, is there sort of not, not necessarily an easy fix, but maybe a Band-Aid that can help them where they can invest most of their money in the cyber issues so that they don't have to worry about losing everything that they make to a cyber attack, but are there small fixes or things that they can do, remodels, something easy that can make the store a lot more appealing and still not cost them a lot of money?
0: And I'm seeing that what I refer to as remodels in place. In other words, taking the store and reviving different elements of it that are visual and apparent to the shopper without redoing the whole store. I'm not bringing in a construction crew. I'm going, to, you know, I'm going to redo an aisle. I'm going to redo a certain department that has a certain high affinity to shoppers. I'm going to change the light. Actually, it's interesting. I, I've always found fascinating, at least to me, I can increase my sales by 2% by changing the lamps in my lighting. It doesn't matter if I make them brighter, darker, no difference whatsoever. The change seems to cause people to buy more stuff. So simply changing your lighting, which is not an expensive thing to do, can change the entire store. You know, all the colors change immediately. So you're seeing some of that. You're seeing a lot of that actually. Um, And I've seen some of the larger, more creative retailers doing exactly that. But if you stand back and you knew something about construction, if you know something about new stores, you can see that what they're doing is really tweaks. They're putting in stuff that's highly effective, but relatively minimal based on their other responsibilities they have to do to make it happen.
1: So it's funny you say that. Actually, I noticed my local uh, grocery store just recently, about a month ago, they used to have these white shelves for all the produce, and it was just one big bin, and it looked dirty and like everything had been thrown on. And they pulled all those out, and they put in these wood shelves that were sort of like tiered shelves, And it looks so much nicer. And I actually find myself preferring to go there now than I did before. So I can see how one little change could make a big difference. I mean, I'm still spending my money there regardless, but I feel better about it when I do.
0: Yeah, and that's a good story. I mean, for a retailer, it's as important to retain shoppers as it is to get new ones. and. Part of this effort is based on that. I personally believe it can only go so far. I think at some point or another, competition between retailers will intensify to the point where they will have to start spending more money in the stores. But at the moment, they still can get by on relatively small changes and keep the same shoppers they've had before.
1: Okay, so I'm going to go back to something we were talking about before, but in a different way. I'm relying back on the old holidays, even though I know you said that the old holidays aren't working so much anymore. What is it looking like? I know it's a bit early still, but how is... Christmas shaping up this year. Do you think that it's going to be as big of a holiday this year as it's been in the past? Are there going to be changes in what people are looking for and buying? What do you think we're going to see?
0: I think you're going to see a continuation of what we've seen going before the pandemic, which is you no longer have Black Friday as being the starting gun. You no longer see this bang, you know, it's the day after Thanksgiving, we're not going to do Christmas shopping. That's not happening. What you're going to see is the overall buying season for Christmas expanding outward. And it has been for the last few years. You're going to see people still spend on Christmas. From a retail perspective, this is going to be, I shouldn't say is going to be, it is frustrating in that did people buy that for a gift? Did people buy that for Christmas or did they buy it for whatever? It used to be easy. If they bought anything after the 25th of November until the 25th of December, hey, that was Christmas. We knew that. Now we don't know that. And that reorients the way that I look at this in terms of, you know, what's happening. We're also seeing changes to major retail holidays like Black Friday, where it becomes essentially a whole week because it's online, it's in stores, it's in different medias and whatnot. Doesn't mean that people aren't spending. It's just that they're spending over time. They're not spending in a panic, which is so much part of that holiday that you see. Interesting enough, you're seeing the same thing in countries like Japan where you have the, the year-end sales, you know, where people are doing the holiday sales there. You see it in Mexico for, you know, La Bonfin, which is the good weekend. The good weekend now is 15 days long. So you're seeing these major events stretch. And that becomes a frustration, but also an opportunity for retail because it gives them more space to operate in. It gives them more space to correct what's happening. But it is, at the same time, more frustrating in terms of the amount of inventory you have to take on, how you're spacing your promotions. All of that comes back to how it is. Do I think Christmas will be up or down? My suspicion at the moment is Christmas will probably be better than it was previous to the pandemic. But I don't think it will be grotesquely more. And I think most retailers are going to get frustrated. How do I measure that? How do I know that was the uptick? And we just going to have to take it apart as it comes along.
1: But I think if we can assume that, you know, like last year, I know people started shopping early. They started shopping at the beginning of October, even at the end of September for Christmas. And it was the retailers that started offering Christmas sales early too, because they wanted to capitalize on, you know the holiday, especially because of the inventory issues, So they were trying to get it spread out so they didn't have a rush of people getting inventory and then they didn't have anything to replace it with. But is it true that overall sales are still the same as it would be if you had slower sales pre-Christmas and then that big tail end to the week before Christmas versus having it spread out that you're still getting the same amount or more? It's just spread out a little bit more and that you can basically assume that Christmas is now a little bit longer. And doesn't that in fact tie in with your theory that the old traditional holidays aren't doing as well and that we sort of need to make new holidays. And this is sort of like the pre-Christmas Christmas Christmas that didn't happen before, you know, where you, it it actually, to me would seem easier because you have a better inventory flow. So you're not having like a rush on the things that are popular, like a certain video game that's in vogue and everybody is coming and rushing to get it. And then you have none or you order too much because you expect a huge rush. And then you're left with extras that you can't sell that you're being able to accommodate for the inventory that you need in a better way. I would think that's a good thing, though.
0: Well, you touch on something that is quite serious and that, again, is a good example of the disruptions we've been through. A year ago, we would have been overwhelmingly talking about inventory. Is it going to show up? Is it not going to show up? Where is it? Is in the ports? Is it going to come out of China? Is it wherever it is? Inventory was a huge, huge issue. Now, this year, where inventory is not as big an issue, but retailers are still scared. When you buy inventory, you tie up your cash. You don't get that cash back until you sell the inventory. So you're seeing a lot of retailers go through that financial struggle. uh, How much do I tie up with inventory? When do I bring it in? How much? If it's something that's coming out of, say, China, which right now is still a very unpredictable market, I have to take that inventory in much earlier than I want to and take ownership of it. One of the odd things in the United States at the moment that we saw at the beginning of July is almost every retailer was putting out Halloween product. Well, Halloween doesn't happen to October 31st. So literally, it's on the floor for over 90 days. And everybody was saying, well, they're trying to get the shopper used to it. They're trying to get the shopper to see that they're in the Halloween business. They're being competitive with each other. And I was probably the only person that said they had to take the inventory early and they had to put it someplace. So they put it in the store. And that's what you saw overwhelmingly is they put it in the store. I'm not sure how much of that's going to happen this year, but that is part of the balancing act you always have in retail. I can't sell inventory unless I have it. But if I have inventory, it ties up my money until I sell it. And that financial tension's not going away. And I think a lot of the. Holiday sales, a lot of the promotional sales that we're dealing with now are reflecting that caution in terms of retailers as they're looking at where to put that money and where to invest.
1: Very interesting, Dave. Thank you so much. That really gives us a great overview of retail sector and what to expect. And I really look forward to seeing what actually happens during the year and to what retailers are going to be doing and how things will shape up. So we appreciate your time and thanks for joining us today.
0: No worries. pleasure as always.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. For more discussions, news, and analysis about the diamond industry, visit us at Rappaport.com. Follow Rappaport Group on Instagram and follow Rappaport on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes.